Well, hey, let's open up our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. And today we're going to be looking at the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 22. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, so you follow along your copy of God's Word. 1 Samuel 22, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning, amen? It says this, and David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. He said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, and the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he was risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king anything to his servant or to all the house of my father for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little and the king said you shall surely die Ahimelech you and all your father's house and the king said to the guard who stood about him turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and they knew that he had fled and did not disclose it to me but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. And the, kid said, the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. He killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. And he put he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Enemite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death 
of all these persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. What an intense passage. As every other passage in the book of 1 Samuel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we come to a text like this and we see so much sin. We see a snapshot of the human life and the depravity of man. And yet we see in this text glimpses of hope as we see your work among your people. How in the midst of a crazy, hell-bent king who is after your servant, how you have preserved David during this time in this cave and in his exile. And how you preserved this story to point to a greater story, the story of the greater David, King Jesus, he who is our savior, he who is our life. So I pray that this text, this message will make much of him because it is all about him. Of him we have sang, prayed, fellowshiped. So may you, Holy Spirit, as it pleases you, Father, reveal to us in greater ways your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Every single one of us knows what good or bad leadership looks like, right? Every single one of us have experienced good or bad leadership. We experience this in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work, in our baseball fields, in our team sports, and in churches as well. And when we talk about the Christian life, and we talk about godly leadership, Oh, we understand that God's people are united or in disunity due to leadership. The same is true of the Christian home. Whenever you see a church split, it is because of bad leadership. Whenever you see a broken home, wayward kids, it is because of bad leadership. Oh, we've experienced we know if we live long enough what good and bad leadership is. And so my question for us in light of this text is what kind of leader are you, Christian? Are you a godly leader? Or is your leadership influenced by the world? It's important for us to ask this question because to whatever degree you have been given the stewardship and the responsibility to lead, to whatever degree, because we all are leaders in different capacities, in different seasons, to different degrees. To whatever degree you have been given the responsibility, you will either be one who preserves the faith of others, or you will be one who will destroy it. Are you a leader? If so, what kind of leader are you? And as we look at this text that we've just read, we really once again have the story of Saul and David. There's always a contrast in this story among these two leaders in these chapters where Saul is hunting David down. And in this text, we can find the contrast of two different types of leaders, and I want to focus on that. We'll see the text unfold. The first five verses, we see the leadership of David, how he handles his circumstances, and then we see the leadership of Saul, and then it goes back to the leadership of David once again, and, and we'll be able to see what godly leadership looks like, and we'll see what ungodly leadership looks like, and then ultimately we find out that we're all a mix of both. And that's why we need Jesus, the only true, true leader, the true godly one who could not only save us, sustain us, and lead us all the way home. So let us first see David's leadership in this text, see his, the, how he leads and, then the, and, and the effects of his leadership. 
And in verse one, we find what is happening in the text is that, it, it, is that for some time now, Saul has been hunting David down, as we know. Saul has been breathing threats against David, and David is on the run. He's made it to his cave of Adullam. He's been hiding there for quite a while. And we could just imagine what his state of mind is. We could just imagine what his frame of mind is, what he's feeling emotionally, spiritually, even physically. And it's, it's awesome to see how many of his psalms were written during this time when he is being chased down by Saul. A homework assignment for you is to look at those passages in the psalms that have a connection with this time of David running from Saul. It's amazing what you would find. Because we can see from Psalm 57, if you would turn your way there real quick, in Psalm 57, it is believed that this is a psalm that he wrote during his time in this cave. And if you see the top header, not that's not part of the inspired scripture, but Psalm 57, you'll see the header. To the choir master, according to do not destroy. And then it says, when he fled from Saul in the cave. So here's where we see the mindset of David, what he's thinking. And here's what he writes. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. I will send from heaven and save me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions and I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O oh harp and lyre. I will awake of the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O oh Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O oh God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Oh, we find in David a man who is on the run, a man who is suffering, a man who, who writes about all the danger that is lurking around him, all the menacing realities about him. And he lives in this ebb and flow of fear and yet rest in the Lord. He lives in the, in the ebb and flow of knowing who his God is, that even in those circumstances, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul as he's in prison in Rome at some moment, he's singing hymns to the Lord. He is singing. In the midst of those circumstances, we find David in a very similar state. But while he is there in that cave, if you go back to 1 Samuel 22, while he's there, the text tells us that his family finds out his father and, and his mother and his relatives find out where, where he's at. So they decide to go find him. They decide to go join him. And you think it's natural for them to want to head over there and see David and be with David, the one who's being hunted by the king. But what is also expected is that perhaps the family is in danger as well. We've all seen movies where there's someone who's being chased, someone who's being hunted down. If they can't find them, where do they go? They go to the parents' house. They go to their house to see if they've been there or, or to even get th those people and capture them for ransom in order to sort of draw the one who is hiding out. And perhaps that was their reality. But we soon find out through a prophet that his cover is blown that David will eventually need to flee. And so we find that David is there with his family. They finally come and he has a plan. He's a leader and he wants to protect and he wants to preserve his, his family, his people. So what does he do? He speaks to the king of Moab and, and he goes to great lengths to figure out how to provide and to protect them. 
we find that in verse 2, there's another group of people that show up on the scene, another group of people that also want to see David. These are a bunch of misfits, a bunch of outcasts, a bunch of people who perhaps it is believed that they were not welcomed very well in society because it describes who they are. These are people who are in distress. These are people who are in debt. These are people who are bitter in soul. They gathered about him. Now the reason, I, I mean the question is why are they wanting to join David? Well, because David is an outlaw as well, and they are sort of like on their way there. They, have, they are really struggling in life, and the question is why? Well, maybe they have, they have suffered greatly under the rule of Saul. And this was predicted to us in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when, when the people wanted a king, and then Samuel spoke on behalf of the Lord and said, hey, you want a king? Well, this is what this king is going to look like. He is going to be one who's going to be abusive towards you. He's going to take your land. He's going to charge you taxes. He's going to take your daughters and your cooks and your bakers. He's going to put you to work. He's going to make you slaves. Because the Lord will say, look, I'm the only king you need. You want an earthly king? This is what you're going to get. And perhaps when they were experiencing these who were in debt and these who were bitter of soul, they were potentially experiencing the hardship of living under the reign of Saul. But maybe it just wasn't Saul. Maybe it was also other things. Maybe it was just their bad decisions in life. Their bad investments that they found out they could not pay. Or maybe they were just victims of the sin and the atrocities of others. But now these people with all these issues, have joined to come and find David. About 400 of them. They show up, and perhaps they are seeking David because maybe they have some identity with him. We want to be out from under Saul's reign, or we just need a new start We've heard about the issues between David and Saul, and whatever it is, we always go for the underdog. We're underdogs. Let's go. Maybe with David someday, if it's true that he's sort of like Saul, it's terrified of him because he's a, a threat to the kingdom. Maybe, maybe with David someday we can flourish. I imagine you being David. What do you do with that? He could have just said, hey, guys, I'm on my own. I don't now have time for you. He, he, he didn't have to take him in. He could have given a thousand reasons why he would more easily hide in the cover of night, in the darkness, without all these men following him. But this is not what he does. He doesn't toss him out. He doesn't ignore them. On the contrary, he receives them all, and he becomes their commander. He becomes their leader. And in fact, another psalm that speaks about David's time during this time is Psalm 52. And I'll just read this one verse, verse 9, how it's interesting how he refers to those who were around him. He says, I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. He apparently speaks of these who were around him at the time, if it's these people, as those who are godly, those who are of God. And perhaps he's just describing how much he is thankful for them, how much he loves them. Maybe David has seen something in them that the rest of society has not. He's found a value in them, a worth in them that they are now his people, his clan. And with this group of people, eventually it is David who would establish the Davidic kingdom. And for these people, it's probably the first time in a while that they felt, hey, I belong to something. I belong to a community. And this really says a lot about David's leadership. The way he leads, he cares for his family making sure that they are preserved and protected. And then he brings in these other people who have all these issues and all these problems and find in them value, worth, and a way that they could contribute. 
in a way that they become now his clan. But we see in the first five verses the leadership of David and then that to be contrasted with the leadership of Saul. Now Saul, on the other hand, we know that he's not like David. He's not hiding in a cave. He's home in Gibeah in his palace, surrounded by all his guys, in his crazy mind. And he finds out, verse 6, that David has been discovered. He has been discovered, and the men that were with him found out this news. And Saul is sitting under this tamarisk tree, and he has his spear in hand. Imagine the scene. Everyone around Saul is, is there, hey, king. He's holding a spear. I mean, we've already had, he's chucked the spear three times at David. He's thrown it one time at his son Jonathan. He's holding the spear for a reason. And everyone, I'm sure, is concerned. And so the scene is there. He hears about David, and perhaps he hears about the 400 men. He's assembled an army, and in this context, under the shade of this tree, we see Saul's leadership. It is not preserving. It is not protective. It is not doing anything to guard God's people. On the contrary, it is seeking out to destroy it's the exact opposite of David. David is worried about others, his family, his friends. Saul is concerned about himself. And in this scene, we see Saul blow a gasket. He's a, he is fuming. He is absolutely upset. And he reminds the men, first of all, as those gather around him. In verse 7, he says, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear people, hear now people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give you, every one of you, fields and vineyards? In other words, he starts to throw in their faces all the things that he has provided for them. I have given you land. I have given you vineyards. I have made you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Will the son of Jesse, David, ever give you those kind of benefits? Will he ever give you these riches and positions of authority and power? I am the one who has done that. And then he gets even more furious. When he starts in verse 8, accusing everyone of just conspiring against him. He thinks everyone is against him. He is questioning everyone's actions, their words, their motives. He's even attacking his own son, Jonathan, as he heard that he made a covenant with the son of Jesse, David. And what we find in Saul as he's attempting to lead in this moment He's just concerned about himself. His number one desire is to hold on to power. What is driving him is not losing control, is not losing authority. His identity and all that he is is wrapped around him being the ruler of all. And so he is defensive and he sees conspiracies everywhere because he sees everyone out to get him. It is the crazy Saul that we've been seeing for chapters and chapters. And the situation is very serious because although he acts so immature, although he acts crazy, although he has these tantrums like a child, we can't forget that till now, he is still the king in power. He is still in authority. And as the one who is still in authority, a man who is raging and angry is a very dangerous man. Few things are more deadly and threatening than to have a power that's consumed by anger and rage. And in the midst of that scene, as he's seeking answers, as he wants to know what in the world, what is going on with all you people? You're all conspiring against me. I need answers. I need answers now as he holds his spear. 
There is one who speaks up. Doeg the Edomite, who we saw last week in chapter 21. And in verse 9, he says, hey, king, um, I just saw David at Ahimelech's house, at the temple. Uh, he met with the, with the priest. And I was there, and I witnessed him there. I just want you to know that, king. I know where David is. And we know what happened last week when David was seeking refuge and cover. He wanted food as well. He wanted protection. He goes to see the priest, Ahimelech. And if you remember that scene, David lies to Ahimelech. David is a type of Christ, but he's not the Christ. He's still a sitter. He lies to Ahimelech. It's not the first time we see him lie. In order to say, he shows up and says, hey, I need your help. I am here on duty from the king. The king has sent me. And he finds a way to manipulate him and he gets of the bread and, he, and, and the priest, Ahimelech, serves him. And Doeg is like, I saw that. So what does Saul do? He says, bring me Ahimelech here. Someone go and get him in verse 11. And he brings all these accusations against him. In verse 12, and Saul said, hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Ahimelech doesn't know what's going on. He's like, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have acquired of God for him, so that he has not risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And Ahimelech answers the king. He says, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, um, I don't know. I don't know what I have done. I don't know what's going on between you and David. I am just doing, I have done exclusively what I've always done. Make these inquiries, deal with this holy bread, a sacred bread, and, 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 and I just am not aware. What I, what I am aware of is that David is your son-in-law married to your daughter. What I am aware of is that he is honored in your house. And he is the captain over your bodyguards. What am I supposed to, how am I supposed to know of these issues among you? I am innocent of this. He came. He needed help. And who am I but one who's here to serve the king and serve God's people? But Saul would have none of it. In his blinding rage, in his anger and self-conscious self-preserving sinful ways. He completely, in complete callous emotion towards Ahimelech, the priest. He orders his death and the death of his entire family. This is the leadership of Saul. His leadership, as we've seen just in this text, began with just telling those around him, hey, everything you have is because of me. Everything you have is because I've permitted it in your life. I've given it to you, but yet, but yet you have betrayed me. And, and then he goes into demanding their loyalty, and then he goes to questioning their motive and just sinking deeper and deeper into this dark pit to the point of now pouring his wrath to murder basically the entire priestly family. And all, all to just try to preserve his kingdom. All because he's concerned about Saul. Now at this point, even his men are, are like, hey, wait a minute, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you're going too far, guy. I mean, we just, you're asking who? So he's like, guard, I want you to kill this man. And, and he's like, uh, they're all like, um, we ain't going to do it. I mean, you got to have some conviction to tell the king who's holding a spear, hey, we ain't going to do it, and, and, hide be, and hide behind somebody else quick, just in case. But who does step in? Doeg, the guy who is not 
He's, 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 he's in charge of the herdsmen. He has a role, but maybe he wants to find more favor in the eyes of Saul. And so he's the one who says, hey, I've seen David. And now he's like, well, this is going to do it. And Saul's like, hey, Doeg, I need you to go and take care of this. He's like, okay, this is my, this is my moment to please the king. So what does he do? To earn more favor from him, from the king, he goes ahead and he slaughters Ahimelech. He slaughters all the priests, 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And they were all members, this priestly family. They were murdered, 85. And if that wasn't enough, Doeg went back to Nob, where the priestly family's from, and, and there he, they killed Men, women, children, oxen, sheep, everything. Could you imagine? This is Saul's leadership. And it really provokes us to pause and to just ask the question, how did it get to this? How did it get to this? I mean, this is the king of Israel. Isn't the king of Israel supposed to save, protect? God's people. But he does the opposite. He destroys them. Well, the sin in man is so deep that you ask yourself, how can men, when you think of the Holocaust, how was it possible that that actually happened? You think that, yeah, in the barbaric stone age, those things, but we're talking the 1940s, 30s, and 40s. Oh, men are capable of the horrific, most heinous crimes. But what a contrast between the leadership of David and the leadership of Saul. And it's important to know that Saul wasn't always this way. Oh, in chapter 10, while he was publicly being chosen to be the king, what was Saul doing? You remember? He was hiding. He didn't want the role. He didn't want the power. He did not want the public presence. They had to find him. But he eventually tasted power. He eventually started to like it. And he eventually started to wield it. And the more he grew in it, the more he tasted it, the more it satisfied the cravings of his sinful desires to control and to have power. It corrupted him and enticed him to desire more and more and more to the place of where he's at now. We see the leadership of David we see the leadership of Saul, and now in verses 20 through 23, there is a swinging back into looking at David once again. The author wants us to see now David and how he responds with this last circumstance. Because what we find in these last three verses, four, four, four verses, that this godly leader who has led well in these first five verses, the one who is anointed by God to be the king, the rightful king of Israel, but who is still a sinner, we discover that once again he falls short because he's a sinner. Because there's one priest who escapes the slaughter. There is one who gets away, Abiathar. He is the grandson of, of, of Ahatub and the son of Ahimelech. He escapes. And where does he go? He, can't, he is running from Saul. So what does he do? He seeks out David. He wants to find David. He wants to find cover under David. But now we have David when he finally receives him and he hears the story of everything that's going on, he starts to put two plus two together. And this is what a leader does. He accepts the responsibility. He acknowledges that all this happened because of him. He says in verse 20, in 22, and David said to Abiathar, I knew on the day when Dog the enemy was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. 
Oh, that day that I was terrified, that day that I was scared, the day that I was manipulating Ahimelech, telling him that I have shown up under the authority of the king. I was about the king's business. Please help me, feed me, give me shelter. And Ahimelech believed it all. Doeg was there, and I knew it. And because I was there, and although I wasn't the one who took out the swords and slaughtered them all, he took on responsibility for it. He tells this man, hey, I occasioned, I am responsible for the death of your family. Oh, his actions in this moment, here's what I mean by, we can see the godly leadership of David, we can see the ungodly leadership of Saul, and we can find ourselves in any of these, in any moment, but we most certainly find ourselves in the mixture of the two, where here we find in David, the one who is a godly leader, but because of sin, there's, there is always, and there's always moments in which there's this failing, because his actions brought about this tragedy, and he knows it, and it wasn't his intention for that to be, but in his humanity and in his sin, this is what has happened, but he is owning his actions, and what he wants to do is he wants to help, he wants to make things right, and he knows he can't bring these family members back, but at least he could tell this man Stay with me. Saul is after you too. Stay with me and you shall be in safe keeping. Oh, and in this moment, oh, David is like Saul, how he becomes a destroyer of life and not one who preserves it. Saul's always making excuses for everything. Whatever he does wrong, he's going he's gonna to flip it. He's going to cover it. He's going to hide it. And, but here is David saying, oh, in the midst of me doing something wrong, I'll admit it. I have owned it. And there are moments in his life where he doesn't own it with what happens with Bathsheba when he, he has murdered Uriah, his general husband, and it took a prophet to confront him and say, you are that man, when he finally admitted his sin. What a contrast between these two leaders, but at the same time, what similarities? Because what this means is ultimately that if we talk about leadership and what godly leadership is, it ultimately means that, man, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. But let me give you two truths that I want us to take as we understand that we need Jesus, and we'll see that in just a minute, but just when we talk about godly leaders, two truths I want you to take home with you. The first is this, that godly leaders seek to preserve the faith of others. Seek to preserve the faith of others. Well, there's so much we can learn from David's leadership in this text. And while it's true that we would likely never find ourselves needing to protect others from a crazy maniac king, and maybe that is one day true, but make no mistake, dangers are constantly around God's people. It might not be a tyrant, a king, but it definitely is for sure every day the enemy, who's like a roaring lion, as Peter says, seeking whom to devour. If we're going to be godly leaders who seek to encourage and protect and preserve the faith of others, we must take it upon ourselves to be faithful in that task. This is why pastors are called, you know, I'll talk about pastoral ministry, leadership, we're called to shepherd the flock of God among us in 1 Peter 5, and to do it with humility, not out of compulsion, but, but to do it with a certain humility and this is why we are exhorted, the, the many exhortations and imperatives for us to encourage one another and to guard one another. Why? Because as we lead with each other, we are protecting, preserving each other's faith. 
This is why parents need to lead well at home as they instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. Instruct them in the word so that they would not depart from it. And this is why at PRC we have membership and we exercise church discipline if needed for the sake of guarding, for the sake of preserving and protecting to make sure that those who are in the faith are not shipwrecking their faith. Godly leaders are proactive to protect and preserve the faith of others. We see this in David, how he, his, his family shows up and he immediately he needs a plan. So he goes to the king of Moab. Who knows how hard that was to actually accomplish. But he did whatever he had to do. He's like, please take care of my family. And how he receives these 400 men and these people with all types of problems. He receives them. He becomes their leader. He becomes the commander. There's a level which he's caring for them. Or at the very end, as he tells Abiathar, after he had sinned against him and now everything had happened to his family because of him, he says, stay with me because I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. This is the mindset of a godly leader. He seeks to preserve the faith in others. The question for you and for me is, are you a godly leader? Because godly leaders take on the responsibility and take on the responsibility even of their errors if needed. Make things right for the sake of the faith, for the sake of preserving, for the sake of the faith of others. Godly leaders seek to preserve the faith of others, but secondly, godly leaders guard against the temptation to hinder the faith of others. Although I'm willing to bet that none of us here are ready to, you know, say, hey, we need to execute those 85 priests. Although we could distance ourselves from Saul, Oh, that crazy man, I'm nothing like him. Oh, we can learn from the leadership of Saul because there are likings. We share the same inherited sin, the same sin of Adam. We all can fall into the temptation of abusing our power, of lording ourselves over others, of lording ourselves over our husbands, our wives, our children, our employees our brothers and sisters. And when it comes, if I can focus leadership for just a second on pastoral ministry, um, I think that very few pastors enter ministry thinking, I can't wait until I can lord myself over others. I can't wait until I can have all this power to exercise authority. Most pastors, I want to believe, those who feel the call to ministry have good intentions. I want to be a servant. I want to be like Jesus. I want to teach and exhort with humility. But what happens, and we're our witnesses of so many ministries and pastors, and it's so tragic to see what happens and has happened in so many churches and in so many pulpits when perhaps a pastor was called to ministry begins well and then ends up gaining too much power for his own good too much authority that then leads him to believe that he has built something on his own, that he has built his own personal kingdom, his own family business. And once he gets it there to where he could pride himself of having built something for himself in the name of Jesus, now he needs to preserve it and protect it at all costs. And now he needs to manipulate. And now he needs to demand of others unwavering loyalty. After all I've done for you, I've given you a a position, I've given you a job, I've given you a role, I've taught you everything you know. Before you know it, their motivations and their words is all to manipulate, to continue to juggle the very thing that they are craving for, power, in the name of Jesus. Folks, this is why the biblical pattern for church Leadership in regards to pastors is a plurality of elders. Because in a plurality of elders, there's safety. I would hate to be 
the single pastor of a local church. Because I know my heart as you know yours. Pastors need to be pastored at a pastoral level. Just like every member needs to be pastored, pastors need to be pastored as well. And if all you have is a single pastor in a church, the question becomes, who's pastoring him? If there's nobody pastoring him, there is trouble. And I'm not saying that there have been single pastor models of men who have been godly and humble. Praise the Lord for that. But the dangers to fall into the trap of sin and the cravings of the flesh can lead to a very slippery slope. But whether it's pastoral ministry, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's your parenting, your leadership of any kind among Christians, we need to be reminded that power corrupts us. If we give in to it, if we go unchecked, we will at best discourage the faith of others and at worst destroy the faith of others. I've never seen a church split, a serious issue in a congregation that hasn't had incredible collateral damage. Where people are like, forget church, forget God. I've never seen a, a couple, a marriage, where there has been a divorce where the children are not wrecked and struggle with all kinds of problems emotionally. And God is faithful and gracious to work us through all that, but the scars are real, the scars are painful. We must take seriously how we lead as Christians because, again, we either lead to preserve the faith in others or we lead to hinder it. And if we're honest, as I said earlier, we fall in both camps. Despite our intentions to lead well, to be godly leaders, sometimes we fail as David failed. Sometimes we look more like David, and sometimes we look more like Saul. The goal is look more like David than Saul. But it's a humbling reality to know that, yes, every single one of us have hurt people. We have hurt others. We have hurt our spouses, our children, our friends, other church members. We take from them sometimes instead of give. <coughs> our words, our tongues... Oh, we, we murder with our mouths, with our words. We, we, there's deep wounds that come from us at times. Or, or, or our indifference towards others, or our lack of patience, or our manipulation of others. Oh, there's none of one of us that's exempt. We do lead sometimes like Saul as we strive to lead like David. And by God's grace alone, at times we lead like David. No one's exempt from this reality. As we mature in the Lord, yes, we look less like Saul. We look more like David because we look more like Jesus, right? But that, it's that balance to just say that we need Jesus. The one who is much greater. The one who is the true David. The true David that protects and preserves the faith of those who are his. Even as in verse 2, we talked about those who have all these problems and those who are rejects and those who have these debts and, and, and that have all these issues. Hey, you know what? That's us too. And yet Jesus said, come. Oh, these were the disciples of Jesus. These were tax collectors and sinners despised by the Pharisees. And Jesus said, what? You come. We're no different 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, here's how we are described by the Apostle Paul. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Oh, he is the one who said, come. And David said, come, I'll, I'll protect my family. I'll protect you, new friends. Come, I will be your leader. There's a, there's a picture there of a man who is this, this, um, this a redeemer who is going to save God's people. But we know that there's this greater savior, this greater David, that he came to save his people from their sin, to save us from our sin, so that we would have a right standing with God. And how he saves, he, it says in John 10, that he is the one who has us in the palm of his hand where no one can ever snatch them because his leadership is perfect, because his leadership is all-powerful. His leadership is all self-sustaining. And he does so How? He doesn't do it by lording in abusive ways his power. I want you to follow me because I am God and I am worthy of honor, although he is of all that. How does he come to save? Jesus says, I have come to serve, not to be served. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. His servant leadership took him to the cross. His servant leadership took him to be nailed to a tree where he would shed his blood for sinners like us, unworthy of his grace, as he saw the debt that we had before a holy God and willingly decided to take that debt, to pay the price, to cancel it, and say, you are free to live in relationship with God because of what I have done. What a display of leadership. It's what David in our text is pointing to in much greater light revealed when Jesus came to earth and accomplished what only he could accomplish. And the one that says, as David says to this man at the end, hey, the difference between David and Jesus, David's a sinner. He's responding to this man by saying, man, I, it was my fault that your family died. But let me, look, I'll protect you. Jesus is like, I am sinless, but come to me because I will protect you, preserve you forever by faith alone in him. So our leadership, our, our if we, as believers, we say, okay, okay, what is my leadership like? Godly leadership is one who is completely dependent on the grace of God in order for that Jesus will be formed in us so that then our leadership can in some way look like his to his glory and for our good and for the good of the church, for the edification of the church. Amen.